0: Welcome to Heroine City, the podcast shining a light on women in history. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking about the women of Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. From aristocracy to performers to ladies of the night... The Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, along with Ranley Gardens further downriver, River, was a hive of social activity along the banks of the Thames from the late 17th century to the early 19th century. Often written about in contemporary and historic 18th century literature and frequently depicted on modern day screens, as the London Museum puts it, part art gallery, part fashion show and part brothel. London's Pleasure Gardens define the city's nightlife in the 18th and 19th centuries. And in this episode of Heroin City we will explore the ways in which women partook in its delights and navigated its pitfalls, as well as discuss a few who used it to launch their careers. With us today through the gates of Heroin City, we have Professor Penelope Corfield. Penelope served as president of the British Society for 18th Century Studies before becoming the vice president and president of the International Society of the same name. Since 2015, Penelope has also been an elected member of the Academia Europaea Academy of Europe, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and one of the founder members of the International Big History Association. She is an emeritus professor attached to the History Department of Royal Holloway. She is also a visiting fellow at Newcastle University's Humanities Research Institute. Welcome through the gates of heroine City into our very own Pleasure Garden, Penelope.
1: Yes, hello. Nice to meet you, shaking hands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I saw you talking on a webinar for the Georgian Group, a group that I was a member for a little while because Georgian London is endlessly intriguing to me. And, of course, a huge part of that is the pleasure gardens and it pops up in pop culture all the time. So I wanted to delve a little deeper into that with you, if that's all right.
1: Excellent. Delighted. And there is more to say because Hall Behind the Scenes is interesting as well as Vauxhall sort of on its grand show
0: Right and as a performer myself I think the angle you took in the webinar was you were talking about some of the performers and aspects that I didn't know about that perhaps maybe I haven't heard of in pop culture so it'd be great to get into some of that I think maybe it's useful for those people that perhaps don't have a wide knowledge of the pleasure gardens is it okay if you give people an overview of what you're studying and why you were drawn to it and why we're here today Yes I'd
1: love to do that because I'm interested in the long 18th century as we call it from the late 17th century right through to the mid Victorian period, because I like a long period to study change and continuity over time. I'm particularly interested in interpersonal dynamics. It's a changing society. And I wrote something, for example, on the advent of concepts of class and one of my students said well how did people greet each other and I thought what a great question so I'm interested in how people meet and particularly in London in the 18th century there are a lot of occasions when all the social classes met together they weren't all segregated off in their little as it were social ghettos and how they met and how they interacted is a fascinating question so that of course took me to Vauxhall Gardens which was the great meeting place in London in the 18th century there were 90 or so gardens that we know about but there were probably many more because just think what did people do for entertainment pre-radio and television they went to pubs they sang they danced but they went to gardens and the most famous of all of them from the late 17th century right through to 1859 when they finally closed was the Vauxhall Gardens also in the beginning known as the Spring Gardens but then they called it Vauxhall Gardens and just Vauxhall and so many people went there it became The thing not just for the citizens of all social groups, but for every visitor, it was a summer garden. And you know Britain in the summer, often it rained, but you don't really get much of that in the accounts. It was the sort of magical place that convinced everybody that it was always a glorious evening. And Vauxhall Gardens ran from April through to mid-September to get advantage of the long, light summer evenings. The crucial thing, it's like a huge alfresco party. It's under the trees and on the south bank of the Thames is a marshy low-lying ground. This is a fine stand, a plantation from Tudor times of mature trees. But under the trees, they created a magical pleasure garden. And people went just to meet others, to see and be seen, to wear their fine clothes, to chat, to drink the famous Vauxhall rum punch, which was very, very heady. But also they laid on a series of entertainments. Music was the prime one throughout concerts and singers. But then there were always variations, there were acrobats, there were dancers, there were parades, there were fireworks in the later years, there was ballooning. I think it would be rather difficult to do that on such a tree-lined site, but every season there'd be something new, something magical. So it was a sort of Pleasure Garden plus, 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 And everybody went there, and practically everybody except the reigning monarchs did.
0: This absolutely makes me happy, the idea of having this outside, along the river. Obviously, this was pre-Industrial Revolution happening that was the tail end wasn't it All well, the factories that started to be built along the Thames but the idea of going outside and seeing all these amazing things in these arbors and nooks and crannies it just sounds magical like you say
1: I will just say one interesting thing too about the music this is the last time that there's a total crossover between what we later call pop and classical music They played both in the 18th century because they hadn't made that distinction. Eventually, concert life moves into concert halls or music halls. For the obvious reason, they can run round the year and on a rainy day, because on a very rainy day, people just stayed away from Vauxhall. Nonetheless, they played both. And so there's a wonderful fusion and sense of excitement. And it wasn't sort of a bifurcation of the tradition. And some musicians now are trying to get back across that. And very good thing, too. It would be good for both pop music and classical music.
0: Tell us about the sources then. Obviously, like I say, you come across it, it's in the ether, it's around, people talk about it, but but what are the sources that you're looking at specifically?
1: Two interesting points here. Firstly, there are no records whatsoever of the official running of the place. They all have gone. So what we would really ideally like is the attendance book, you know, the the register. But, of course, they just sold tickets. They didn't list everybody that came. If we had that, wow, the wonderful sociological surveys we could do. But we don't have that. But what we therefore do, it's the sort of subject for which you have to spread your net very widely indeed. There's no finite body of sources called Vauxhall. So you look in letters, diaries, accounts, visitors' accounts, travel accounts, but you also look at songs and newspaper accounts and so forth. So you have to piece together lots of things. But in a way, that rather makes the point that you just said it was in the ether. So you pick up references everywhere, places you're not particularly looking for them to write my art and all the rest. I just opened a file and through and everything and gradually it got large enough to write. And a lot of social history and the sort of interpersonal dynamics that I'm talking about, you have to do in that sort of way. I'm just finishing an essay on the history of the handshake and there's no finite body of sources and you can't look up H for handshake, but you just pick up references.
0: So how long have you been looking at Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens specifically in collecting for that file? Well,
1: that's a difficult one because I'm only 25 years old. but
0: <laughs> Me too, that's coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: probably... Um, to do a big uh, sort of social history, putting uh, together many of the sources of this sort, like I did an earlier article on hat on, who took their hat off to whom and in which circumstances. And that's not the only thing I'm doing, but a big thing like that takes about 20 years. And you just, while you're doing other things, with a finite body of sources, so I mean I work on the electorate, for example, the 18th century elect, and We have poll books. And we know who voted and how they queued to vote and who was in the queue next to whom. I mean, really amazing stuff, which we don't have now since the secret ballot. So alongside doing that, I would always have one of these open file projects alongside, but it, it takes a long time. And you shouldn't jump in too soon because one file may contradict, one source may contradict another. So you need to Pick up lots and lots and lots and the one of the great things of looking for things in this general way your eyes are always open and you're never bored
0: i totally understand this is the way you feel like you're spinning plates all the
1: time in research terms though i should say for an ma essay or a phd it's best to choose something with a more finite body of sources so this is what we call a classic postdoc so often while whatever you're doing now keep a file open and you'll have a long-term project alongside it and also Jot down everything when you see it, because otherwise you go hunting back through a pile of papers or a a novel. Where is this scene? Where is that? I know somebody did this or that. And I can't tell you how often I've gone back looking for things but now I'm really trained. I just note it immediately.
0: Great tip. Thank you for that. It was going for so long and it was kind of so well known. People had different pastimes but this was the social gathering the place that people would come together on a regular basis. So I want to know who went? Was it a melting pot of different people and different classes and and what they would find there?
1: Shall I do who went first?
0: Perfect. Yes please. It,
1: It did change a bit over time But in its heyday, from the early 18th century through to about 1800, it was very much an adult, especially a young adult. Place of entertainment. Of course, remember, it wasn't the only place. There'd be pubs and gardens and assemblies and soirees and everything happening everywhere. It was a very, very vibrant social life at all levels. This was the the sort of great lodestar, the sort of very special centre of it. And it did attract three distinct groups. It certainly attracted quite a lot of aristocratic society on a fairly regular basis. But then the entrance ticket until the 1790s was only a shilling, very low for middling sort. So Large numbers of London citizens went there, all in their best clothes to rub shoulders with the nobility. And the rule was that servants could come with their masters and mistresses, but they shouldn't come in livery. So they didn't come in uniform packs. They would come and join the throng. I mean, they would be being respectful and tending their lords while they're on duty, as it were. But they would be there. London citizenry, a number. It it spread Quite a way down the social scale, but of course, the very poor were not there because, among other things, they wouldn't have the smart clothes, at least outwardly, to wear. But we do know, for larks some of the young you know, artisans and apprentices and so forth could climb in before the fence was put up. And that, that, was, that was the only time there was a riot at Vauxhall. It was very peaceful, no deaths. It was a peaceful place, unlike some other parts of London. But initially, it was a lovely open site surrounded by a ditch, as they called it, a ha-ha. So that the sight lines, as you looked along these walks through the trees, it appeared just to go on endlessly. Of course, later on, as it begins, to get built up around you're only looking at houses so it's not so glorious but to start with it looked like an open vista and so some of the sparky kids would climb in up the ha-ha you know not a difficult thing to do have you ever seen a Georgian ha-ha a boundary ditch you see them still sometimes in grand country estates
0: yes Stapleford it's, Park's got one I think to keep the sheep away from the house
1: that's the aim yeah but if you're young and nimble you can clamber up those so there was a certain amount there was a trade in counterfeit tickets it was so popular and there were people climbing in which is why eventually the management put in the fences and for the first season the young rakes threw them down. So there was a certain amount of mingling, but it was mainly a chance to parade around in as much finery as you could muster. I didn't
0: know that about the livery. That's interesting because they would have just seen like revellers themselves. Like you say, they're still there doing a job, but actually it's quite clever, isn't it? Because that just gives an atmosphere.
1: Yeah, it reduces the sense of hierarchy. Well, of course, there were... I mean, Ranley Gardens were also very famous, but they were much more expensive. So if the aristocrats wanted just to rub shoulders with other aristocrats, they went to Ranley. There's lots of accounts that they enjoyed. The throng, a bit like walking along a seaside promenade or a pier, you know, you're just enjoying all the crowds and the bustle. And I forgot to mention in the actual groups that go there, especially in the late 18th century, it was very popular with literary figures and wits and Dramatists, So there'd be clever people writing about it, which, of course, adds to the puffery and excitement of it. But by the end, management was struggling. The site was getting much more industrially developed. By the very end, they let in people in the daytime and youngsters. It was more like an amusement park. But then it had lost its magic and people wrote sarcastic things about how it had lost its magic, which, of course, didn't help.
0: It's like everything, isn't it? That it has its time, it has its peak, and then things change. That's really interesting. So it doesn't surprise me that Vauxhall was a throng and it was about people meeting people that they wouldn't necessarily meet in everyday life and things happening that were perhaps a bit exciting, a bit different. That makes sense, especially in Georgian London, where that's kind of the idea you get of Georgian London as a whole, isn't it? There's a lot going on. There's a lot of exciting social... Activity and that mix of interesting different people that you perhaps wouldn't meet but then again same in the coffee houses same thing I'm getting the idea of it's basically an Instagram for the Georgian era this is about showing people how fabulous you are it's a time where you put your finery on and you put your best foot forward
1: it was a heterosexual pickup place as it were full of erotic possibilities but I just have to explain quickly of course Georgian London being full of diversity there are well-known Gay men pick up places as well. Lincoln's Inn Fields was one place, but Vauxhall was for heterosexual encounters. So it was full of erotic possibilities, far more than ever actually happened there. But there, there was a sort of sense of you might meet the perfect partner or temporary perfect partner, but something might happen. And there were rooms for hire all round in case couples met and got carried away. They weren't actually having al fresco sex in Vauxhall, but they could certainly repair to rooms nearby if they felt in the mood. So I perhaps should tell you in the description about the famous dark walks.
0: Yes, please, because you mentioned that there were no deaths, or at least no deaths reported, and that's really interesting to me because I always think, with all this frivolity, alcohol, energy happening, all this mix of people, that's surprising when you just said that, and also because I've just read a book called Daughters of the Night, which focuses on a who done it, and the murder happens in Vauxhall Gardens. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about the upside and the downside of that kind of frivolity.
1: Let me just describe the place, first of all, and then I'll talk about the careful management, very cleverly done behind the scenes. But the front end, the north area, as it were, of the site was... As we've been saying, arcades, trees, booths to eat and drink, the famous concert stand with music, and there were lots of things to see and do, and arcades and archways. It was visually very exciting and dramatic, rather like as if it was a really grand castle's ground. They were all sort of wood structures and canvases, but nonetheless, it looked wonderful, especially, of course, it was at night, it was an evening resort. The Vauxhall lamps were all lit together, making a sudden brilliant show, but half the site was left unlit under the trees. The dark walks sets the imagination free. Now, of course, walking there, it wouldn't be completely dark. You would see through the trees the light of the lit up area, and you would hear wafts of the music and the laughter and the dancing and all the rest. But nonetheless, they were secluded. And it is picking up from the reputation that the area already had before Jonathan Tyres opened the formal gardens in 1732, but it was already an area where courting couples went. So this was continuing that tradition. So couples would walk arm in arm under the trees and maybe get up to more exciting things. There was no absolute description of alfresco sex, but certainly canoodling under the trees, and then also a certain amount of romping. And we get onto this when you have a question about how women had to manage themselves there. They had to be a bit careful not to lose their reputations by you know, as it were, going into the dark walk on their own and coming back dishevelled and undressed. That wasn't a helpful look. But we'll come on to how to handle life in the dark walk in a moment. But it did have both sides to it. So there was the sort of public side and the sort of quiet withdrawal area. And it was the combination of the two that was very enticing and sort of open to possibilities. We've got newspaper records of the area, and so I'm not saying there were no deaths. One of the deaths was a a cook who bathed in the river on a hot summer day and had a heart attack from the shock, you know, so that some deaths associated like that. But otherwise, it was a safe place. It had pickpockets, that's for sure. And it had the problem of how to tell a prostitute from a, a countess because the prostitutes were dressed up so glamorously. So you know, there were very social Hazards, but it wasn't a violent place. And this is part of the secret of the Tyres family management during its heyday. They would act like social hosts, masters of ceremonies. So it was a bit like coming to someone's party, but they wouldn't meet absolutely everyone, of course. There were thousands there, far too many to meet, but they would meet the grandees and so forth. That would have the air that it was like someone's house, not just a sort of casual bit of a forest, but clearly they had a team of watchers who cleaned the place. I and mean, there's no descriptions of it as being full of litter or people peed in the dark, water, peed under the trees, but there's no description of wading through crap or anything. You know, They're, they're being kept clean and they're being kept secure. Cure And what they have got, it's called a cage, which isn't actually a cage. It's just a sort of pen in the corner of the site where if the drunken young men or I suppose one or two women, but it's mainly the drunken young men got too drunk, they would put them in the cage, let them sober up and then let them out. So they were not <laughs> prosecuting them, or, but they were just taking them away from the rest because as seaside resorts are now finding if people get too drunk and it upsets the rest. This management was done very, very discreetly. It was very, very cleverly done. So people didn't get the feeling they were being sort of heavily invigilated at all. But just when young men got out of control, they'd be just shunted aside. And the other thing, again, it's, it's a tribute to Tyre's management, really, and his insight to see that they were serving food and drink In order to make all this happen very quickly and efficiently, there was a sort of standard menu and standard items and standard costs. A famous rum punch and they had a famous pie. So you're not having people sitting there umming and ahhing as they go through menus or anything like that. They're just choosing from a set list. And the service is incredibly quick. There's clearly a great workforce behind the scenes. One waiter would be allocated a certain number of booths and tables and they just serve them very very quickly so it seemed like magic obviously there was a great deal of organization behind the scenes how we'd love to have his notebook you know the notebooks of the family or the organization but tires was the first one jonathan tires there's a still a jonathan street and a Tyres street in the area now commemoration he was clearly a really inspired impresario because it kept it all running perfectly but without people feeling oppressed there's no description of anyone all the visitors never comment on oh the heavies were breathing over my shoulders and checking on my behavior. There's no reference to that at all. Now, by the end, at the end of every season, there was a certain amount of fracas. The last night, like the last night of the proms now, the, the last night of the season was always the dancing went on till four or five in the morning. And there was a lot of fuss and chaos as people went home and the Surrey magistrates were not too pleased about that. And especially by the 19th century it was becoming more and more of a, a lower class entertainments area rather than so much a sort of high society see and be seen. They were having more mass entertainments. They cut down a lot of the trees. They'd have marching bands and parades and shows and naval tournaments and all sorts of things. They had a much larger and more rambustious clientele. The magistrates get more and more alarmed as time goes on. And in 1825, they order... The dark lights must be lit because too much shenanigans were going on. So there's always a struggle between propriety and order, and enjoyment and letting your hair down. But in their heyday, they managed it extraordinarily well. So people were never frightened of going there, and they wore all their finery. Whereas, of course, as you know, in some parts of London, they wouldn't go marching out with their greatest finery. But there were pickpockets at the gardens. But I haven't looked through all the legal records, but. There are certainly no notorious cases attached to it.
0: It is impressive, isn't it? And like you say, it's integral to the attraction of the place to feel free and possibilities around the corner, while also feeling safe. And you can dress up and relax a little bit. So yeah, that is a clever fine line that they must have trodden.
1: Absolutely, there's a tension between all that, and they must have been conscious of that all the time. But they didn't let it show. That's the crucial thing. You've got to appear utterly nonchalant and at ease. The Tires family, they always had one would act as the master of ceremonies, and after that, there was someone famous called Charles Simpson, who played this role. He dressed up like a sort of regency dandy and sort of exaggerated his role. But it was like the sense, yes, sort of you're in somebody's, not their home or garden, but you're sort of known, as it were, rather than you're just in an anonymous corner of London. And the major problem was drinking, but when is that not, not a problem? With, in resorts, that's a common thing. For women, you did ask me about women in particular. Women had to be extra careful because their reputations could sink by coming out of the dark walks in a disheveled safe. Sad to say, but double standards, it wouldn't be held against a man in the same way. The most famous account of this, Evelina, 1775, Fanny Burnett was a young woman. It's not quite autobiographical, but it's drawing on what she must have known From her own experience and her friends. She has her naive young heroine who is new to London life, goes to the gardens, loves it, of course, and goes with a group of women. And this was the most common way for women wanting to go into the dark walks would go in a group and they would see the crowds and hear the whispers and smothered laughter and all the rest it was obviously quite a fun thing to do but she describes and they then get caught by a group of men who form a circle around them they're sort of stopping them going on and the girls get agitated evelina makes the mistake of running away on her own and it's always best to stay in the group (laughs) what the georgians called romping they're not they're not actually assaulting them but it's certainly sort of titillatory behavior but she runs away and then she gets caught by another group of men who see her running through they think she's fair game and they're taking many more liberties with her but one of them is a young man who's been courted who recognizes her Takes her by the hand and sort of rescues her, but she is expecting him to take her back to the bright lights. But he takes her into the darker corner, and the clear implication is he's going to try and ravish her. But Bernie is a more cautious author than that. Richardson does have a rape scene in Clarissa Harlowe, but Bernie just goes as far as to suggest, you know, that the chap saying, "My God, to see you here on your own, dishevelled, distressed, you know, it's all, almost more than I can bear." You know, he's clearly getting wrought up and excited. Again, she says no very firmly and they walk back together to the bright lights quarrelling. He's been courting her, but for her, it's a moral test. She's realised he's not the man he might have been. And so thereafter, she's always very cautious about his addresses and she doesn't end up married to him. So it's like a moral audit, really, how you cope with yourself. But just to put it from the other point of view, I think from the point of view of the prostitutes, if we look at it, the female prostitutes, if we were male prostitutes as well, but if we look at it from the point of view of the female prostitutes who went there, it probably was for them a rather nice occasion because they're in the, the whole of the company and it's probably the more affluent and successful ones you know with the fine clothing that could pass themselves off as in this fashionable society so probably for them it was a very nice sort of more relaxing entertaining sort of evening work as well as pleasure we don't have any prostitutes diaries but if we did i'm sure they'd find they'd enjoy a night there there's another group this is an 18th century term called demi reps this means half respectable, half reputable. So what we would call later good-time girls. They're not necessarily professional prostitutes at all. It would be wrong to think that. And, of course, there's no strict classification. Demi-Rep is someone a bit more casual, looking for a, a nice evening out, a flirtation, drinking with people, if, with luck snaring a smart husband, maybe a, a merchant or a townsman or a young nobleman, although noblemen's families were usually more cautious and tried to stop them getting snared like this. So there'd be lots of women there just easing the social meetings and greetings so that if you were a shy young man but wanted some company, that's where you could go and find company, not necessarily the love of your life, but good company. So there's, there's a whole array of behaviours and this obviously added to the attractions of the place. You're not going to be alone moping in the corner. There's always someone to, to keep your company.
0: It just made me think of the courtesans like the Reynolds, Joshua Reynolds paintings and all those kind of the courtesans that you know that were famous at the time. I'm sure it was all part of their PR campaigns is making sure that they were seen in these places and actually using these opportunities to rub shoulders with people so that they knew that they would be written and talked about.
1: Yes, and, and part of it is actually... Getting the place talked about. And Jonathan Tyres would encourage journalists, the journalists who came in, they'd be welcomed and given a frontline booth, as it were, to sit and observe. Everything And there were lots and lots of puffs and there were songs about Vauxhall and, you know, just a media drip, 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 as we would say in a modern terminology, just to stir things. And, of course, they'd love it if people are mentioned this in their letters and diaries. And I say often when there's something very famous, you know, people go, there to, oh, well, I wasn't impressed. But enormous numbers actually write nice things. If they're going to complain about Vauxhall, they complain about when it's on a very popular evening they're coming either by coach and horses and the roads are crowded and crammed and it takes eight forever to get there or they're coming by boat and the boatsman bumps another barge and they have difficulty getting off onto the riverbank but it's almost always about getting there rather than actually being there and as i said i've been open to finding bad news as it was finding bad reports but I haven't yet. And although in the later days, as I say, I mean, Charles Dickens is very satirical. There was a famous cascade that was switched on at nine o'clock in the evening, and everyone would run to see it was like a waterfall. But Dickens is very satirical when you go there in the daytime, and you can walk around the back and see the leaking pipes and the machinery that made it happen. And, you know, it sort of lost the magic. There is also there's a joke about Vauxhall when it rained, everyone would run either into the rotunda, which couldn't take all the thousands, or under a tree, you know, so they'd run back under of the trees for shelter. So, the circumstance, it can't have been that every night actually was such a wonderful al fresco party. You know how variable the British weather can be. It must have been cold and rainy evenings. But probably on those evenings, people just wouldn't go. But it's when they went on the fine evenings. And I haven't yet found any private reports saying, oh, what a bore, and I wasn't impressed. Everybody seems to have loved it. They have a trick to pull off, isn't it, as a host?
0: It's a brilliant trick. And also, it's probably tantamount to the good time that he would show the writers and those people reporting, because obviously, you make sure they have a good time
1: a lot of it was related to the famous Vauxhall rum punch
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> i would love to know the recipe for that a lot of rum i would expect so we've talked about the different places people could be found and what they were doing there potentially i like the idea of groups of girls going in to, s- to <laughs> see what was going on in the dark walks
1: they're known as that with a capital d capital w and it's a bit saucy yeah
0: and that's even part of the attractiveness. but what was happening on the lighter side shall we say
1: there was always a program of entertainment the Organiser were very clever. There'd be some star billing. The star billing would be changing all the time. But the big, big constant is the Vauxhall music. It's famous for its music. And again, this is before the Albert Hall or the music halls. Later there's this bifurcation between the classical and the... It's everything. It's, the promenades are in Vauxhall Gardens. And because they paid well, they paid their musicians well, they are siphoning in the talent from all over London. Many of the singers we know who sing in Vauxhall Gardens, they do actually sing in other gardens and in pub rooms etc etc but they would all want to get a billing in Vauxhall. hall so it's a bit like an open air party and a seaside promenade and london proms which is of course also a summer concert season so it's very like that all happening in one place the big thing is the music and part of the is not to make the thing seem sleazy as it were it would be ethereal music coming out all the time and they had bands and they had singers and interestingly as we mentioned before this was quite a showcase case for female singers. But I looked up some examples for you with very varied fortunes. And it tended to be, because this is al fresco singing, admittedly, they had concert booths and they had trees over it. So there'd be a bit of a sort of amphitheatre. Nonetheless, of course, they're singing without amplification. So you have a very strong voice. So the most famous singers there were male singers with louder voices. But there were one or two. The most famous is Anna Maria Leary. She was known as the siren of Vauxhall. And she was very shy at the start and nervous, but she obviously learned to throw her voice. And the nearest I can think of is something like the gospel singer, someone like Aretha Franklin or Whitney Houston, who could make their voice heard over an orchestra, and with all the surrounding hubbub and all the rest, you have to have quite a voice. So I was looking at the list of women performers to be able to tell you about them. But one of the things I noted actually was a very high turnover. I don't think people came again and again. Probably a real strain to sing in those circumstances. But Anna Maria Leary, and later in her married name Franklin, she was one of the constants for quite a long span. She obviously had something of a major voice. But to give you an example, one almost coterminous with her, someone called Charlotte Brent. She... Sang there a lot, but she died in poverty. In fact, she died in lodgings just next to Vauxhall. So she was a sort of jobbing musician. There's not a very romantic world for the musicians; it's work. But there was also one in the 19th century called Kitty Stevens, who was an actress as well as a musician, and she managed to hook a young nobleman and ended up a countess. But she was the extreme of the success as well. Most of them were jobbing musicians. One or two did badly and died in poverty. But someone like Miss Leary, later Missus Franklin, they'd be jobbing musicians in the professional circles of actors, musicians, dramatists, not making huge fortunes, but having a nice way of life. But again, we don't have any memoirs. Oh, we'd love to find memoirs of Miss Leary's diaries. Boy, I would love to see those, but I live in hope. You never know what you can find. So it was a place for musicians, and quite a few musicians made their names there. The most famous of all was Thomas Arne, the musician who wrote the music and the songs that his wife sang, he was the most famous tended to be the male, one of them was described as having a raucous voice and obviously you needed to have quite a megaphone voice, but it was a workplace as well, so it's a sort of unofficial workplace for the demi-reps, who are big good time girls, and it's a workplace for the prostitutes and for the musicians, though of course the musicians were not prostitutes
0: And that's really interesting about the fact that they had to have a certain level of volume to actually perhaps be chosen But and also that he paid them well, I think that's part of making sure that people came back again and again because they had the highest standard of performer which is important isn't it if you are going to maintain a, a high standard and, and keep those people coming back for more can you tell us any more about the siren what kind of things she sang is it opera is it like you say a mixture
1: she sang more folk songs and ballads and in fact she was promoted and given this name the siren of box Hall. but i think we would say in modern times she didn't own her own image. She was being merchandised, as it were, because a lot of the printers and publishers would print the print music of the song and sell them, and they'd have her picture on it, but she is not making the profits from it. There's a picture of her. She's dressed. She has a low-cut dress, and she's got three ostrich plumes on her head to make her stand out. She stands in the concert box singing away. She's partly being used to sell, but the music is all being sold. Songs would be promoted as sung in Vauxhall. It's a great sales point. And when I say they they would be relatively well paid compared with the other gardens or pub halls or whatever, they're still not very well paid because there are lots and lots of musicians. Music is, is a profession with a low entry so they're not making huge fortunes and compared with the most successful women in the entertainment industry, that are the female actors in this period they can make huge amounts of money these women are jobbing musicians but they're getting a lot of fame And although Anna Maria Leary was a bit nervous to start with but she obviously got used to it because she spent a lifetime doing it and was was admired for it mm. but she didn't make huge fortunes so you could also say they're being exploited commercially, actually, but it's a sort of 50-50 thing. And we can't tell how many were like Charlotte Brent and ending in poverty, middling like Miss Leary, or one or two soaring through like Kitty Stevens. Though interestingly, Kitty Stevens was an actor as well as a musician. And the actors, they can choose their repertoire. They're more in control of their persona on stage. The singers have to come up. They provide their own clothing, by the way. They don't get any Dress allowance and so forth But they've got to appear well-dressed you know, It's not a romantic job But it's a way of life Those with good voices
0: I suppose when it comes to acting as well You'd have a run of a play as well So there would be a steady income While that play was running Rather than jobbing singers here and there Getting paid for one night only As a performer, I've been in pop bands The music industry hasn't changed that much Unfortunately, I think Women being exploited for their image And then not necessarily being in control Of the revenue streams That doesn't surprise me Especially at the time So it's really interesting about The reproduction of her image Image. Makes me think of people like Kitty Fisher, who used the pamphlets in the printing press and worked it to their advantage in their world. But it sounds like someone like Anna Marie, she didn't necessarily have the ability to do that, or the know-how, or the contact to maybe really exploit what was obviously great PR for her, but she wasn't in control of it.
1: Yes, and also I, I think her voice well, wasn't really that rare and outstanding. So that if she'd stood up for something, and they said, "Well, right, that's it. You know, we'll get Miss Bloggs and." Dead. whereas kitty fisher is an extraordinary phenomenon famous for being famous the first celebrity without any except she obviously had a charming genial personality without any special skills you know compared with the actors and all the rest but she made her reputation but only quite a brief period she was only in the eye of of her media image for a brief time but she had a more sort of distinctive brand there was only one kitty fisher as it were the singers came and went and as I So I was looking through the register, there's a website with lists all the performers who are known to have performed in the Vauxhall Gardens. And I was struck how many women would just come for one season only. So it wasn't something that they could control at all because it wasn't really the perfect vehicle for the female voice. I think that's the truth of the matter. You had to have a real foghorn voice to cope. It
0: sounds like it was for a moment in time and perhaps they moved on to other things or got married or whatever it may be.
1: Yes, Although some of them did continue after they were married as well. Miss Leary did that. Also, one of the things for the what are called the semi professions, that entry into them is very easy. There's no formal training and accreditation. It's swamped, you know. So that, I mean, it, I would it,
0: argue that doesn't mean they're very good, though. The singer myself, there's a difference between someone saying that they can sing and a singer, two different things. Uh, but then I'm a professional singer, so <laughs> so I'm going to be biased.
1: I do agree. But in this very period that we're talking about, for example, The surgeons are professionalizing because you don't want someone untrained hacking your leg off with a hacksaw, other branches of medicine are all professionalising and setting up their colleges, the College of Surgeons, the College of Physicians, setting up entrance exams and training people. And the musicians and entertainers come into the ones called semi-professionals. So I agree that not all the amateurs trying to join are actually any good, the access to it, and that affects the pay structure. And the same actually applies to teaching. Gradually, over many centuries from the 18th century onwards, teachers have tried to professionalise teaching, and now there are. Qualifications and so forth, but to start with, there weren't and there weren't any for musicians. You just, if you could get in and succeed, you that's it, you did it.
0: Guess that there would be a huge gender pay gap as well when it comes to the men singing and the women singing.
1: I'm sure you're right. We don't have any evidence on that.
0: That would be so common
1: across the whole of Georgian society. They didn't even comment about.
0: Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Although women were
1: coming to the fore and asserting themselves, literary ladies because they had a more distinctive product: their books, their writing, or women artists. They were coming through.
0: I think you're right, though, having something that you can put your name to means that you can then reproduce it and see the revenue from it. But singing a song before you could record that song?
1: Sure. None of these were singer-writers. You know, They were not writing their own songs. She literally was singing ballads and whatever songs were written at the time would be written for her rather than by her. I've got a picture of Kitty Fisher in my book and also of Peg Woffington. There really ought to be a film of Peg Woffington, a Dublin bricklayer's daughter who made it in the theatre in Dublin and then London, had an enormous success both in comedy and tragic roles, built up a huge fortune, had a number of famous lovers, and died young. I mean, what a career. Wow. And she's still known in acting circles. And there are other famous ones that later in the 18th century, like Sarah Siddons, who is very well known as a name. But the life of Peg Woffington was the most extraordinary. And I am interested in shooting stars, of women who come from nowhere, make it in a big, big way. I mean, Kitty Fisher is one though she... Her star doesn't last for so long, but Peg Woffington is a classic example.
0: Me too, when it comes to women who burn brightly and really well known at the time and then somehow get forgotten in history. and Unless we bring them back and create creative pieces around them so that people have an encounter with them, they disappear from the history books, don't they? So I'll look her up. I'll find out more about her because she sounds great. We were talking about rising stars, using Vauxhall Gardens as a platform. I assume Ranley had the same kind of entertainments, perhaps not as many, or was it more concentrated?
1: Yeah, not nearly as many, not nearly. It. It was, They would have singers, but it was more like an aristocratic soiree. Vauxhall is the centre for entertainment, and Vauxhall was always a new attraction every season, something different. I mean, really... Imaginative. So that actually limits us to how many people can manage that and pull that off. Mm. So, Radley was not noticed for things changing, but it had an outdoors and an indoor, and so it could beat. Vauxhall on a rainy day. Smaller numbers, but indoors, you know, it would be very pleasant. But Vauxhall is where you want to rub shoulders with a wider array mm. of people. It had everything going in its heyday. It was fashionable, but safe to see a bit of life. Probably people, you know, the poorest of the poor, would be say, so, oh, my goodness, if you think this is real life, you know, but it is the illusion of the urban crowd, but also the sylvan environment, the trees. The...
0: Thinking about the policing of it as well, because it was all about being seen and people were writing about it and reputation was everything. I think that's the other reason why people quote-unquote behaved themselves. That's also the, the reason why it probably kept everything checked, because everyone was going to talk about you if you did something. There were copycat gardens around the UK, am I right?
1: Yes, it's a great tribute to Vauxhall that many of the provincial gardens called themselves Vauxhalls, because that was the name to be bring people in and even this is a great great compliment there was a Vauxhall a Wauxhall as they called it in Paris Paris was copying London there's a plaque to this is the site of the Paris Vauxhall of course the garden has gone now but it's quite near the Gare du Nord and they're classically places just on the perimeters of the built-up area that people can get to easily but have a bit of you know country feel to them and the trees in their heyday were obviously lovely it was a plantation and by the end people were saying the trees were a bit tired and grimy with the industries all around but it was a lovely area. In the late 17th century, nightingales were singing there. But I'm afraid as the crowds came in and the, the noise and the bustle, the nightingales disappeared. But it was like a little trip into the countryside. It was quite distinct from the other gardens all around London. Interesting in their different ways. Talking about number of places where we had copycat gardens all over England, France, some other countries, Holland. There was a Vauxhall in uh, New Orleans for a while, 19th century. So Vauxhall would be the name. It became a brand, not just an entertainment, a sort of equivalent of the Tivoli Garden, but they've got more little booths and shops in, which you didn't have any of that in Vauxhall. It it was more like an open air party in which everyone was joining in, in the grounds of a fabulous castle, but with actions and things happening. And it's a mixture of a park and a party and entertainment and concert everything all thrown in together so many of the copies were certainly not as grand and not as diversified
0: and also you're not going to see those famous people because this is the start of when everyone was talking about gossiping who was doing what with whom and that kind of thing the voxel one would be where you see those people
1: yes the nearest equivalent also that could happen when you went to the spas like at bath for example we do have diaries of people we have a, a cornish vicar of you know, relatively Modest status he goes to Bob, and he's rubbing shoulders with the prime minister in the spa. <laughs> so excited, but it's that sort of thing that happens in football.
0: On another podcast episode, we're talking about Kate Merrick, who was a famous nightclub owner in the 1920s, London. And at one point, they were also recreating the nightclub atmosphere, so jazz bands, music, along the Thames further down. I think it's towards Twickenham at that point, so where you could get a little bit rural again. And they would, during the summer season, create the nightclub's outside in lovely gardens. So I always feel like there was some sort of heart back to the idea of Vauxhall.
1: Yes, well, I do think its image, it was such an ideal sort of prototype. It occurs almost subconsciously in later thought. You know now, of course, there is a little bit of greenery there as a tribute to it, and the the local area is trying to honour that past. But for example, when in 1951 they were thinking about a special location for the Festival of Britain, a special park associated, they chose Battersea Park further along, but it's to do with this association. The South Bank, not quite so much now, there's so much growth in South London, was characteristically dense on the North Bank, so the South Bank was the bank for entertainment. So 1951, Battersea Park Festival Gardens was a sort of later tribute to Vauxhall, so you do find echoes of it everywhere and this ideal. And that, I think, is its main legacy. Although, of course, as you would also pointed out, it recurs in films, novels, everything now when you want to recreate the 18th century. You have a dashing duel and you have a visit to Vauxhall Gardens.
0: Instantly puts you in a time and place, doesn't it? When you've yeah. got things like Thackeray and Austin always, people know it, they know it. I always wished that there was something the equivalent of still happening. I always think of all the beautiful gardens, say Chiswick House or, you know, all these different places, Hever. Wouldn't it be wonderful? But obviously it was about being sort of quite central in London so people could get to it relatively easily. And you'd have to go a little further out now, wouldn't you? And whether there'd be a demand for it or whether it would be more... Commercialize, you know could you recreate it now do you think
1: I don't really think so no and partly because especially in the early day the actual journey there was part of the fun you know taking a boat down the river and walking up through a field to this lovely party al fresco or coming in a coach and even by the end they were complaining that the travel was too crowded You'd have to go right, to right, right, right out into the countryside to get somewhere as sort of unaffected by the town, and then you'd have all the hassles of getting there. You couldn't just promenade there or, or get there relatively easily. So I think the scale of urbanism now is so great that it's hard to do that, and also to get that cross mix of the social classes all happily together. I think the nearest sort of effect you have is actually, as I said, walking along seaside promenades or down walking up and down piers but then of course they have to have all the little booths and entertainment to, to make those commercially viable getting it all together again getting the the pop with the classical the aristocrats with the townies the town with the country and all of that sort of quickly easily and safely is too much what would be fun to do is try and create it as, as an immersive experience uh, you know the technology much better than I. I don't know anything about that. But you could imagine, like some museums have areas hung with Vauxhall stuff and playing music to try and create the effect. It'd be really fun, as an immersive thing, to start from the bright lights and the visual bit. Well, we have lots of images of it, so we could recreate that, sort of know how to do it, plus put in the soundtrack, and then you could come around and then look at it from the dark wall. I'm hypothesize you can see the lights through the trees and you can hear the wafts of music it would be wonderful to recreate and see how that would work you
0: speak in my language Penelope so that for me that would be heaven i you know and i've got the performers i'm happy to sing i have a very loud voice but i <laughs> but the siren. i have, I'll be yes exactly the siren of, of of wherever we can find the space for but i definitely have thought about this and I would bite someone's hand off for an opportunity to recreate this from a historical perspective but also from just you know being able to walk through something that you've read about and you've seen in the films but actually experience it and I think having that kind of platform for some of my performers they absolutely adore to do it so yeah let's talk about that let's try and make that happen I know Vauxhall Tavern and I know Vauxhall Station, but I kind of haven't actually stood in that little bit of green because I feel like it's probably far from where my imagination takes me when I think about Vauxhall Gardens. So, yeah, that is
1: the fault. And in fact, it was the coming of the railway that was the final coup de grace for it. Carried on for ten years after the railway, but you know, with trains and soot and smog and all the rest. But they have made a nice area there now, which is a sort of tribute to it. I have absolutely no idea how the how the technology would work. But you could do it maybe by even taking the story of someone like Evelina as the naive young girl finding her way in the world and seeing what happens and sending her into the dark walks. You could make quite a nice little story out of that.
0: For sure. Do you think that there's space for, say, a film specifically about Vauxhall Gardens? So that is the centre point. So maybe the family that put Vauxhall together. I mean, do you think that there's space for something like that, the ins and outs of it? Or do you think it should just be the magical Vauxhall that we see from the other side?
1: Well, it depends whether you want to blow open the sort of secrets of running it from behind the scenes then you do need the Tyres family, and Jonathan Tyres in particular. And you could imagine them thinking, how can we make this work, as it were? But if you want the illusion of how it seemed, then something like the story of Evelina going there and going into the dark walks and the family have to go in to rescue the other girls. There is a storyline there. So It depends whether you want to be immersive into the front of the stage or whether you want to do the efforts backstage. And of course, it's quite fun backstage, but I suppose it's more fun as a story if there's backstabbings and (laughs) illicit sex or, you know, dramatic things. And as far as I know, there isn't. I was
0: thinking more that a TV series or a film would be the kind of backstory about the Tyers family. But I'm totally down for recreating Evelina's journey or, or any other journey. The Siren, it's maybe taken a few different central characters based on the history of the place and putting that together in an immersive experience because the beauty of something like that and you know an immersive experience is that it's not linear you can have something going on there and something going on here and and actually just walk through and experience it.
1: Actually you could do all the stages of Vauxhall you know from the time when Peeps was there and the Nightingales were singing and then all the different stages the stage with Charles Simpson and then the the open end of the Dickens going behind the scenery and gazing at the leaking pipes you could go all the way through very unkindly one of the press comments I think it was the Times said when at box Close closed it was like mourning the death of an old friend who you thought had died a long time ago
0: <laughs> it's a commentary isn't it
1: an old friend you know and yeah. so even to people who hadn't actually been there you know it's just like a an ideal
0: yeah, and a passing of time and progress, yeah. If yeah. someone like Dickens would have been commenting, William Morris, you know, they probably would have been yeah. quite vocal about the fact that, you know, the Industrial Revolution took away the nature that was happening in the the different things that were there previously, so I could see why they would be quite damning of it.
1: Dickens loved the jollification side of it, but nonetheless, he was a young journalist, you know, what do you write? He's sent there and he came back. You know, it's, it's very witty and amusing.
0: Yeah, I think you could definitely use it as a, a commentary about progress quote-unquote and the the dawning of the industrial revolution but um okay well we have our work cut out i think we should start thinking about places we could do that totally up for that in the meantime do you have i know you mentioned a princess do you have an anecdote about Vauxhall gardens that you wanted to share
1: yes i've got two nice anecdotes one is the ambiance and the other is the princess but i'll tell you about the ambiance this just Always makes me smile because it's typical of the ingenuity of the tires. But in 1718, the the great surprise of the day: orchestra would play, the choir would sing. They say there is an echo here, and then a hidden choir behind the trees would repeat perfectly. They say there is an echo here. (laughs) Brought (laughs) the house down. They mimic it perfectly. Of course, there is no echoing because they're under the tree. But that's the sort of half jokey, half fun. But everyone would be talking about it, and they'd go to hear especially the first time they did it. What a sensation. <laughs> but it, So there's just this element of playfulness as well as all the rest in what they do. There's always a talking point. Every season there's a different talking point. That's brilliant. That takes really hard work to dream it up.
0: Gosh, I'd like to know some of the other talking points now then, see how creative they got.
1: Right at the end, and this is before the advent of the zoo in 1840, they had a lion tamer and two lions. Now, you know, there'd be all the health and safety and care of, let alone the public, but of the animals. And then the zoo opened, but it was sort of a bit of everything, fireworks, ballooning. They're trying everything in Vauxhall, but later they're all going to specialist places. That's one that always tickles me. But I thought you'd like to hear about Princess Serafina because she appeared in 1732 They had a couple of big mass balls to celebrate Tyre. He'd actually purchased the gardens or rather started the lease. And then he purchased it from the Duchy of Cornwall as his own thing. And he opened it with these formal balls. And the Princess Serafina was quite a character there and danced until late in the night. And who was she? Well, she's London's first recorded drag queen. She's called John Cooper, or rather, he's called John Cooper a butcher. Now, obviously, when I say Princess Serafina was there, she wouldn't be with the aristocrats because they'd know, well, which family are you from? <laughs> yeah.
0: because, this is no princess this, I know. Yeah. Yes, That's
1: exactly. It's like, you know, which dynasty are you representing? But anyway, <laughs> she passing herself off as Princess Serafina. Amazing. So a lot of people, of course, went in costume to these. They had lots of fancy dress, mask balls, though they happened elsewhere in London as well. But people loved them. Frisson working out who everyone is. But we know about Princess Seraphina because he picked up someone as a man. He was a gay man, and the man he picked up tried to rob him, and he prosecuted him for robbery. But in the course of it, it came out that John Cooper, the prosecutor who lost the case, by the way, was actually known to go around in female clothing because some of the witnesses came and said, oh, if I know him, that's Princess Seraphina, who appears in a dress and wig and you know, very fetching too. And one of them was saying, Her Royal Highness, they were taking seriously her princess persona. That's an example of the sort of myth-making of the gardens and he wasn't actually trying to take money from people. you know Nothing wrong. It was just a lovely fantasy. He was Princess Seraphine and accepted as that for that evening. Then his cover was blown and I don't know what happened to him eventually, but anyway, he lost his case against the robber, probably because he was thought of as a not reputable person because he, he presented himself at the start of the case as a worthy citizen who'd been robbed. And it came out that the, the robber said, if you prosecute me, I'll blow your cover and you'll be revealed. And that's what happened. But this is the sort of thing that could happen at Vauxhall, so you would never know who you'd be dancing with or walking with in the dark walks. So you really had to stay on your toes. You know, it's talk about feeling alive. Wonderful.
0: Wow. So you could be whoever you wanted to be. You could be royalty if you chose to. Fantastic.
1: And we have records of what clothing she was wearing as Princess Seraphina, so we can you know, we can do that fairly accurately.
0: Amazing. We, we talked about the Siren of Vauxhall and normally what I ask is when we're talking about different heroines or different people, women in history, we play with the idea of if they were a superhero, what would their superpower be? But I mean, with someone like the Siren of Vauxhall, she obviously had a ridiculously loud voice and maybe huge lung capacity. But if the Siren of Vauxhall actually was a superhero, what would their superpower be?
1: Well, I was going to say a super voice, but she probably had by the standards of her day, a super voice that could be both. Loud, but also tender and expressive and all, it's not just bellowing out. So I think if she had a superpower, yes, she'd like to take control of her own image. She'd like to be not just the siren of Roxhall, but the mistress of, of the use of that. And
0: and then really live up to the siren name and be able to manipulate people with the vocal ability. So whether she wanted to, to charm them with the softness or she wanted to, you know, break glass.
1: Break glass, that's very good. As long as she doesn't break the glasses with the rum punch,
0: <laughs> that would be chaos. But then it could be the talking point that year.
1: Yeah, but I don't think they. I don't think Not the a good one. Rum drinkers would like it, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, think about this. Yeah, we've got to keep people happy. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So, Penelope, if the people want to find out more about Vauxhall Gardens, tell us about your book and perhaps what they could carry on reading if they wanted to know more.
1: Thanks for that invitation. Well, I have. A book called The Georgians, The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain, came out last year in hardback and has just come out in paperback. That has references to Vauxhall Gardens in it. And then I have a little pamphlet called Vauxhall and the Invention of the Urban Pleasure Garden, Pleasure Gardens in this case. And that came out a few years ago, but that's got it all in a nutshell Though I've discovered some things since then, which aren't in there. So if it's the next edition will have Princess Serafina in there.
0: And you have a website, don't you?
1: I have two websites, actually. I have a website for my essays. I've done quite a lot of essays, including Hat Honor, who took their hat off to whom. That's in my personal website. Just if you just put up Penelope J. Caulfield, historian, it'll lead to my website. But I also have one called Georgian Witnesses, which is about all the Georgian places to go, books to read. Theatres, shows to see, whatever, town and countryside. And that is, again, if you put up Georgian witnesses, you'll find that, including, I managed to find a Georgian shoe that was unearthed from the walls of Ely Cathedral. Builders used to put items, it's a sort of good luck thing, but anyway, I've got a, a lady's boot Unworn since the 1690s also there's a plaster cast of a georgian criminal who was after he was hung his skin was flayed and he was used as an artist model for training talk about training artists so they drew figures from the life and anyway we don't have the corpse i'm relieved to say that we have a plaster cast of an 18th century criminal and oh well there's so many things georgian witnesses you can find if you just put up that, those two words, or WWW, The Deeds and Misdeeds of Georgian Britain, which is the subtitle of my book. They're linked. But there's no end to the Georgian era. It's a period of total fascination, and it had a certain exuberance. We're now sort of oppressed by including some of the problems they left, like the legacy of climate change after part of continuing industrial society. But it was an era of such optimism, such invention, that it's quite a tonic to get back to it.
0: Honestly, I'm drawn to it endlessly and the characters that came to the fore in that time, because of the possibilities and because of the things that were happening, when it comes to narratives and stories and people, I love it. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of it today with us because it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. And we have work to do, Penelope, so I'm going to have to, you know, call it because we've got to get off and start writing this immersive experience. Let's let's do it. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for being here at Heroin City today.
1: Yeah. Bye, and good luck with the project.
0: Hey there, it's me, Lindsay. Just wanted to add a little request, if I may. Please make sure you subscribe, share the podcast, and tell all your friends about it. Remember to follow us on Instagram, which is at heroin underscore city. If you've enjoyed the podcasts, please rate us with a stupendous rating so that other people can hear about what we're up to. Thank you. See you soon.